Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 85 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates, and I'm glad to have back my fellow Canadian friend, Megan Calloway. Uh, it's the first time though Megan's been on the rebranded solo podcast. Megan, I think you've done probably two, maybe three episodes before. And for anybody who's not yet familiar with you, you're an online coach, you're a writer, you're a presenter, you create a lot of programs that we're going to talk about. And uh, again, it's really great to have you. So great to be back. And I think I could be wrong. I think this is time four or maybe time five. I think it's, I, I swear it's time four because did, God, you know, there's been like, when, when we add them all up, there's like two over 230 episodes, but did you do one with Lee Peel plus I think two solos? Lee and I did one together. I think I did two where I was talking about my pull-up program. And then there might've been another that I was talking. I think it might've just been a random show where we talked about whatever was on our minds. Yeah, so you've been here a bunch, but it's the first time, like I said, on the uh, on the, um, the new format. I've been trying to bring back uh, some of the great guests. I just had Mike T. Nelson back on, but first time again for this format. And unfortunately, like for anybody who remembers the old episodes, it misses something without Guido, his irreverent kind of running off on some sort of crazy tangent, but he always keeps the conversation fun and flowing. <laughs> Well, the first time when I didn't know you very well, it was hard because I didn't know if it was you or Dean <laughs> talking. And it, so that was a bit confusing. And then once I kind of figured things out, it was totally smooth. Yeah. And then because I'm trying to remember, I, yeah, I met you, I met you a bunch of different times. I mean, Inland Empire Fitness Conference 2018 when you presented. And then obviously you came here, you were here with Dean. And we then later on, we had you here as one of the presenters at the Evolved Canadian Strength Symposium. So once you, once you get in front of us, it, we're easy to tell apart, but just voices initially, I totally understand. At least the first time. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's dive into some of your work because there's obviously a whole bunch of like really cool, successful stuff here. And I wanted to, to share that. So you've been, if I'm not mistaken, you've been working exclusively as an online coach now for a, at least a few years, correct? Yeah, since uh, two years, I guess March of 2020 was when I went exclusively online and it kind of has taken off from there and I haven't really looked back. Hmm. So I wanted to dive into that. I, like, I'll just let you go kind of where you feel is appropriate, but things about how was that transition uh, and any systems that you kind of built up through your career that allowed you the transition or were essential to how you run that business. And uh, I'll just let you start there and I'll go deeper after. The transition was surprisingly smooth. And I'd already been doing a blend of online and in person. If anything, I don't know if you've noticed this, the online, it kind of make keeps you more on your toes you have to be better with troubleshooting adapting your coaching your queuing stuff that you might be able to do in person maybe in more time you do you, at least I found I was able to adapt and do it a lot faster online versus in person and you know Travis Pollan yep yeah so a couple of I think the first time we did this, it was about six months ago. I did a group Zoom session with Travis, my friend Katie, and then I don't know if you, you're familiar with Jenny Rollins. The name sounds familiar, but I don't know Jenny. She's great. She's kind of more in the yoga industry. She's fantastic. So I did a group Zoom session with them, and I taught them a bunch of the calisthenics, a lot of the stuff that I do, you know, on those stands, mm -hmm. like the handstands and the muscle-ups and stuff like that. So... The session went really well, but Travis said he was so shocked by uh, just the effectiveness of the coaching. And he said, sometimes it takes him minutes or longer to come up with the cues that I was able to come up with in seconds. <laughs> and part of it, again, I think just the detail of my coaching prior to shifting exclusively online, it has had a really good carryover. So I know so many people complain about Zoom and how it's not as personal. And I 100% get that. Mm -hmm. For me, I love it. And I think my clients do as well, whether or not it's we, or whether or not we do Zoom sessions or it's the monthly coaching with the weekly check-ins. So I love it. I would say, I mean, your attitude towards that, like something like Zoom, especially, because I think a lot of trainers, for sure, I don't like Zoom coaching at all. I really don't like yeah. it virtually refuse to do it now even some of the people who were kind of doing it the last couple of years i'm like no guys it's, it's got to be in person or it's just straight online i'm you know yeah. i don't like it and knowing that 
it wouldn't be fair for me to offer it. And our attitudes are going to affect how effective the experience is. And the fact that you love it and you have a really positive attitude about it, that's going to shine through. And then the other yeah. thing is, is you've been a coach now. I mean, I know on your website, it says like, what, 18, over 18 years. I don't know how, if that has been updated recently. So <clears throat> you've been training people a long time. And I don't like beating this drum about, hey, you have to coach in person for X many years. I don't like that gatekeeper-ish sentiment, but I'll, I'll elaborate on it in a second. But the experience of being a very practiced in-person coach, of course, it's going to be a massive asset into being able to react. Huge. Yeah, I think it's a huge asset. And I think, again, I don't want to gatekeep like you said, but I do think that having some in-person experience is so important. And I, and I agree with that. The, the thought on gatekeeping, and this is what I'll say, we have a generation of trainers who are coming through where social media, they're starting on social media. They're starting with access to online coaching platforms and systems. And we either have two choices. We can gatekeep and say, nope, you have to have a minimum of two or five years in person before you've earned the right to be an online trainer, which is pointless because they're going to do it anyway. Or we can be great resources, especially with what we're going to talk about here, to help trainers become the best possible online coaches they can as quickly as early as possible in their careers and have them plugging into liking, respecting our media to where they become ethical coaches and they're constantly trying to be better. Yeah. And I also think in terms of the effectiveness of the online coaching, it depends on the type of client. So me, the type of huge. So somebody who's there maybe purely for motivation. I think that type of client is much better served doing in person. Other, I mean, I'll get emails sometimes people who want to work with me and they might have an injury. Mm. I don't feel comfortable doing that online. That would be something I might do in person. So I will try to refer them to somebody in person. My clients, the type of people that I work with and the type of people who tend to seek me out, they're the type of person, they're generally already quite motivated. They're relatively experienced, regardless of their fitness level, they do have some experience and they're really interested in the process and learning. They really want to be educated. They really want to be able to do cool things. And I think that's why my coaching online has been so seamless. Other clients would be a lot tougher to work with online and they would be much better in person. It makes sense too. And, and this, especially for coaches who are trying to build an online clientele, we've all been told in person, you take you know everybody and you sort of learn and you adapt, and you figure out what works for you. But it may yeah. make more sense to be a bit more selective in the online realm to work with people who ultimately you'll enjoy working with more, your skills and your competencies will suit better. So that way it's not a bad experience for you or the client. And you, you touched on something I was gonna ask anyway, what, what do you feel attracts your clients? I mean, I love pointing out that you work with uh, the Blue Jays president and CEO of baseball operations, uh, Mark Shapiro, right? And he, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you talked about this, like he just followed your social media, he really liked what you were doing. And uh, mm -hmm. so again, with the fact that you have over a hundred thousand followers and you have a very engaged social media, what role does that play in clients self-selecting to want to do the things that you specialize in? Huge. The type of clients who seek me out, they know what I'm about. So if they don't want the detail, if they don't want the education, they probably won't contact me. My clients, they love the detail. They love the coaching. They love being corrected. They love that I'm being or they love that I'm super nitpicky <laughs> with the weekly check-ins or in Mark's case, we do because of his schedule and he travels a fair amount. We do, I don't do this with other clients. We do text check-ins and I'll text him the day before and I'll tell him what I'd like to see. Mm -hmm. And then the following day, he'll send me a video and then I will assess the video. I'll give my feedback and then I'll reply. Mm -hmm. And some days I'm lucky his dog Cleo will video bomb. So I get to see his dog in the videos a lot which makes my day every single time. That's one of my favorite parts about uh, the videos from my online clients is the pets are always, or even sometimes the kids, but the pets, especially they photo bomb, video bomb, and uh, they get in the way. And it's, it's great. I love it. It's the best. 
actually yesterday he sent me a video and he said, make sure you watch until the very end. <laughs> and so very end of the video, Cleo walks right in, flops down on the sky dome floor and just falls asleep. Aww. Yeah, it was adorable. And you hit on something there too. And it's worth having a little bit of fun with. We do have a lot of friends and peers in our industry who work with, you know, we could call celebrity or higher profile clients. And while I, I definitely will say it's not about treating them differently or special privileges or going above and beyond, but sometimes given the nature of the general manager of a professional sports team and what's going on with their scheduling or our friend Lee Boyce, for example, Lee works with Robbie Amell uh, of Arrow, right? He's an actor and he's worked with Hal Penn and a handful of other, you know, Hollywood people. And there are going to be special considerations there. Uh, or you get someone like Don Saladino, who, I mean, Don's at the point now where he's very exclusive with who he trains. So he trains Ryan Reynolds, amongst other people. And wow, yeah, actually, he works with half the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Sebastian Stan. He started with Hugh Jackman. He's worked with Scarlett Johansson. Like, it's actually pretty nuts who Don works with. And that, but that's also a space he owns, like Ben Bruno, same sort of thing, right? Justin Timberlake, Chelsea mm-hmm. Handler, so on and so forth. You know, not every other trainer is going to be working with celebrity clientele. But if we do have a professional athlete, there are probably going to be some different considerations. So I don't know, your, your thoughts on that balance? Uh, I guess it does depend on the person, the client, special considerations. And I, in Mark's case, we did start with the weekly check-ins. But for him, just because the travel days are unpredictable, his schedule is unpredictable, it just worked a lot better doing the text, like the kind of casual texting check-ins that way. Mm-hmm. And another thing, he, Mark, he is so considerate and just really wants to make sure that he is not taking advantage. He's probably, he's by far one of the most respectful clients I've ever had. And so for me, I have no reservations doing this. Mm-hmm. Other clients, sometimes people, I don't know how to say this. Um, I guess you need to set very firm boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I, with all my clients, I do have very firm boundaries that I give at the beginning so they know what to expect. They know when the check-in day is. It keeps them, them accountable. It allows me to run my business properly. Mm-hmm. Before, I didn't do that. And I think John Goodman was the person who... He was on a podcast and he was talking about the boundaries and how it is so important to set them. Mm-hmm. And it made everything so much better for them, for me. And so in Mark's case, what we're doing is perfect, mm-hmm. but it's not something I would do with everybody. It just wouldn't make sense to do. And that makes sense. Um, every coach I think is different. And there are people like, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with my friend, Andy Morgan, Andy, is in Japan. He's co-authored the Muscle and Strength Pyramids um, with Eric Helms and Andrea Valdez. And he's a smart guy. He does a very high-end you know, kind of coaching program. And he makes sure that people are checking in on a specific day. And there's, you know, he wants things in point form because he wants people to be really efficient to make sure that they're giving him the most essential parts. Speaking of photobombing, um, people listening can't see this, but Ozzy's got his tail and his butt in, in the camera. Uh, and that will, people will self-select to that kind of coaching because that's the person who wants that independent, but they want the structure. They want to know that the coach is there to solve the problems, but they don't need to, you know, message every day and, Hey, I'm having trouble with this. I'm a little different than you guys. I, my clients, and this is not for every online coach, but my clients have my cell number. They can text me anytime. And I would rather, you know, kind of put out fires to a point. I, I, I want them to be able to be functionally independent, but I think the clientele self-select to wanting to know that, hey, the coach can be accessed uh, more or less when they need them. Obviously, I, there are times where I can't reply um, immediately, but as a trainer, you have to know which system works best for you. And I think it also has to do with the different personalities with trainers, Right. But I, I agree with you. I think that important boundaries are essential. And I've worked on boundaries over the years too, because I, I tended not really to have a lot of them with, when it comes to my coaching. I had no boundaries before. And when I started going to therapy, gosh, time has flown. I don't go anymore, but I think it was probably about four years ago. 
I went consistently for a year. And one of the things that we worked on setting boundaries, personal life, but also professional life, because if I got an email, I would reply back immediately. I was available constantly and it took a major toll on my mental health, but even my overall ability to do my work properly. So with my clients, and again, I kind of, like I said, my client, they're I don't really get many emergencies or fires that I have to put out. If they need, if there is an emergency, I will respond. So I've made that clear, Mm -hmm. but the type of people, the weekly check-in for them works great. Mm -hmm. And some clients, they skip the weekly check-ins and I will follow up and be like, look, it's optional, but I really would love to know how things are going. And I would really love to see some videos. And some of them will just be like, the program's great. The workouts are great. Talk to you next week. And I'm just like, I would love more. I give a lot and I like a lot in return, mm-hmm. but some people don't want that. Mm-hmm. And I've got clients like that too. You know, they don't give me a lot of notes to work with. They're very happy to continue on and they, they do their work, but they're not overly communicative. And it's also what they self-select to. So I think as a coach, you also have to say, am I happy with this? Or do I have certain expectations of clients that they also have to meet? And I think that's very valid too. Yeah. And I think the boundaries are also good because as you know, people have a tendency of overthinking. Mm -hmm. And if the boundaries aren't there, people are just going to fire off one question after the next, after the next. And a lot of times when people are overthinking, sometimes it's not necessary. I don't want to say it's not relevant, but sometimes it's not even helpful So if there's boundaries, people are more likely to be selective with their questions, gives them a little bit more time to think about what they're going to ask as well. And that's really valid. If if anything, that may be the most important thing. Over the years, I've had very, very few clients where this was sort of an issue, but I can think of two in particular. Uh, One, well-intentioned client, uh, a little unreliable with scheduling and would bombard me with questions that were easily Googled uh, even when that client wasn't active with me. Now my clients know that they can reach out to me and ask me stuff when they're not training with me. That's quite important, but this is one of the only clients where it ever kind of got out of hand to the point where, you know, I I just kind of didn't rush to respond at this point. And a second client I know would ask me or say a lot of very basic things. And these were just kind of, I realized these were touch points that were important to that client more so than the, answers that that client was looking for, but that client's long-term success and journey has been so profound that I'm really proud that I always kind of smiled and said, okay, you know, I know what's going on here. It doesn't take me very much to, to respond to this and be supportive. But again, it, you have to figure out what your personality is as a coach and figure out those boundaries. And I'm glad that you brought that whole topic up because I, what would have happened if you had never develop those boundaries been there done that massive burnout and it was right around the time of that first presentation I did in Spokane where we met for the had we met before in Edmonton see that's I think we had the random run-in yes when I was with Dean and Lindsay we saw you and I popped into the restaurant. Yeah. Yes. So I, I was yeah, trying yeah. to figure out what the sequence was, which came first. And I'm now virtually certain that I met you at that restaurant first. Yeah. I think it was, I'd had a few drinks and I don't really drink. So I <laughs> probably wasn't quite in my right state of mind. So the time brief. around Spokane, it was, I launched my pull-up program in October. Spokane, I believe was August. And I was running on fumes. That first launch took It took me months to recover. I didn't have a really good system in place. I hadn't, I mean, I prepared very well, but I didn't realize what was going to happen. And it was largely because the launch was so successful, but it was just one thing after another. People I had never talked to in my life coming out of the woodwork to ask me for business advice because Mm -hmm. they realized, like they recognized that the launch had gone well. Back then I had no boundaries. So I just burnt myself out so badly. Spokane was kind of the point where I crashed. Mm -hmm. And I I believe it was two days after Spokane. That was when I decided to start going to therapy. (laughs) So I had no boundaries back then. And it definitely, now I'm very serious about boundaries, mental health, and I will never look back. And even by 
not having boundaries. It obviously took a toll on me, but I don't think I was able to do my job as well as I do now. And even my retention for my clients, I have very a very good retention rate for all my online clients. When I was doing in person, I had decades worth of retention in many of my clients, or sorry, not decades, uh, decade. <laughs> and one client had been with me for 15, another for 17. Mm. So I think the system works, but some clients do maybe want more. And mm. then maybe I wouldn't be the best fit and I would pass them on to somebody else. And that's, that's essential too. Like even you mentioned earlier about like being a bit hesitant to deal with people with say injuries or at least complex injuries uh, in an online space. Yeah. If you've got someone great in person, but you have one of the best resources who could probably take care of a fairly confident degree of injuries in an online capacity. And that's Dean, Dean Somerset, right? I'm Definitely. Sure Dean, because Dean is, he had built his own online coaching platform and system, very detailed, meticulous assessments long before online coaching became a popular thing. And Jonathan Goodman was sell, you know, selling the online trainer Academy certification or anything like that. Dean is one of the originals with this. Yes. If the injury, if obviously, obviously if it's outside of my scope of practice, I would always say no, including when I was working in person, that's never anything I would do Mm. online. If it's something minor and a lot of the time, the people will even say, I'm just very deconditioned. Certain things hurt. Mm -hmm. That's different. If somebody were to come to me with a complex injury, that's not something I'm comfortable doing online. And I would refer. That, that's valid. And I think that's just wise. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff in this conversation. Yeah. It's just good basic principles, whether you're online or in person. You mentioned your, um, your pull-up program. And I, like, I'm gonna, I have a presentation with the NSCA uh, this coming weekend. By the time people listen to it, it'll just have passed. But it, and it's a presentation on fitness writing. And one aspect of fitness writing is creating info products. And I actually mentioned you in the presentation as sort of the benchmark for someone who's had a lot of success building info products your ultimate Paul program, landmine program, there's a few others. So A, do you have something new in the works? And B, you know, as opposed to everybody coming at you again for that business advice, are there any pieces of wisdom that you would share with someone for the viability and how to approach building and selling such an info product? Uh, so I've launched the pull-up program. Landmine was after that, then the push-up program. Then I launched the ultimate lower body and core program. Mm -hmm. And this past April, I launched the ultimate pistol squat program. So nothing new is in the works right now. I'm just focusing on marketing my current products. I am really focusing on growing my email list. Mm. People are so focused on social media. I was one of those. I mean, I technically, I guess I still am focused on social media. I think a big mistake people make is they're so focused on getting new followers, they don't focus on the people they already have. Those are the people who have been there. They're the people who trust you. They're more likely to buy your products, request potentially work with you as a coach. Mm -hmm. Focus on the people you have. If new people come, great, and they will come. But don't forget the people who have already been there, who've been there potentially for many years. And I think one of the best ways to attract new followers is to do a really great job of serving and being present and sharing great information with your existing following anyway. Yeah, exactly. That's how I get the majority of my clients. And so many of them, they say they love the detail of my content. Right now, that is not sexy on Instagram. (laughs) That's not what the algorithm wants. It's not. And I don't care. Mm. I I have 100,000 followers. Even if I had 10,000, it would not bother me. I just want to keep putting out my content, staying consistent to what I do, my overall message. I do tweak things. Mm -hmm. I kind of, when the algorithm changes, originally it pisses me off. Mm -hmm. Then it kind of excites me and it's almost like a challenge. So right now I'm being challenged because it's been awful. So I'm tweaking what I'm doing while still being consistent. And it's been pretty cool. Yeah, the algorithm has been goofy lately. You and I were talking about this off air. And um, the, the tweet post, despite the fact that reels and video are supposed to be the big thing, 
the tweet posts are eternally good and they went on a monster surge. So this is a conversation I've had with John Goodman. His following's been exploding. Mine's been blowing up. And I've had conversation with people like Joel Jameson and others who've been doing more and more of this stuff. And they're watching us the following surge as again, these, these tweet posts, especially the content still got to be good. It can't just be generic bullshit, but yeah. uh, if people want, want to engage with it and share it, that it's just going to bring more eyes to your door. But it's also serving, the, again, the people who are already there who really love it. So goofy stuff, chasing the algorithm is probably like learning the skill of social media engagement, I think is wise. Chasing an algorithm to, is, is a tricky, I think it's a fool's errand and there's a difference, but eternally sharing good information <clears throat> is still going to win no matter what. And I guess this... Yeah. You have for a very long time, despite the fact that very recently you felt that it hasn't been working as well, but you also still have one of the fastest growing Instagram accounts over the course of the last couple of years to blast up to a hundred thousand. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose a question here is how intentional are you, or maybe were you with how you went about it? And are there any principles that you have kind of entrenched and adhered to in building not just social media, but an online brand as a whole. Yes. I've talked about this on numerous podcasts and I am in the process of updating my website and branding. Mm -hmm. I use, I don't know if you've seen the three E's I talk about. I don't know if I have. So this was not something, it wasn't intentional. And then I was reflecting one day and I'm like, wow, my content, my overall message, me as a coach, I like to educate, I like to empower, and I like to excite. I like people to learn, I like them to feel empowered, and I like them to be excited by what they're doing. And so that, with all my posts, when I create programs, when I'm working with clients, if I can hit the three E's, things tend to explode. So it might be product sales, it might be people sharing posts potentially getting new clients, retaining these clients. I think that's been my biggest game plan. And in terms of the content, it's still very similar, whether I share it in a reel, whether carousel posts right now are doing terribly. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you do the carousel posts. They were amazing for the, I would get sometimes thousands of saves Mm -hmm. from a single post. Easy. So one of my posts, I believe it brought over 10,000 followers Wow! from a thing. Yes. Now carousel posts. And I've recycled a few because the, the recycling does work. Mm-hmm. One post in particular that I believe brought me, I think it was 800 new followers, almost 4,000 saves. It didn't even crack 400 likes. Weird. Uh- the carousels are bad now. Real are okay. I laugh because the quote posts and I'll see what people say. And I have my own words. I have my own message. I'll say something. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's kind of, my audience will respond. They engage fairly well, but it never blows up. And the days that I share the quote posts are by far the days that I have the most unfollowed. By Unf- far. Yeah. Every single time. Yeah. And there's something here. It's for whatever instagram supposedly is throwing out there we attract following based on the kind of content we share and the style right whether it's video based stuff like you tend to do mostly or if it's maybe say a a twitter post like i mostly do you know i kind of realize okay mine has become sort of like fitness industry wisdom and philosophy right whereas Mm -hmm. your brand is definitely more in the performative technical education of movement right and, yeah. and my stuff like that shows up in, say, articles for Teen Nation and the other uh, publications I write for. And I'm like, ah, I actually want to do more of that on social media. But people show up for and engage with what you train them to or what they self-select to. So the people who have been yeah. surging in as followers are trained to and self-selected to interact with your videos, right? And my people are definitely more interested in the, the text-based wisdom. Now, that doesn't yeah. mean that that's exclusively that way, but it's how we've accumulated our followings. There's probably overlap between it. So if you deviate massively from either style or in some weird cases, you get people who go off of being kind of like, you know, neutral in fitness. And all of a sudden they go on a very hard ideological, political, social bent. 
then their following is going to be like, well, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't what I'm interested mm -hmm. in. And you're going to see an out migration of the people who kind of go, mm, no, I'm not, I'm not going to stick around for this. Yes. I don't share them a lot. Every so often I'll have a thought and I'm like, you know what? Today's the day I'm going to share a quote post. Mm -hmm. I might share one every week or two, if maybe even less frequently than that. Never anything controversial. Nope. Although I'm sure you've noticed if you share something and it's the most neutral statement, you will always have at least one person come out and they'll say something. Your post might be relevant to 99% of the population or even 99.999, they'll come out and say, they'll give their opinion and it's relevant to maybe 0.0001 of the population, but because they feel this way, what you said is totally wrong. And it's just time consuming and exhausting. And I don't tend to share a lot of the quote posts largely because it makes not a lot of sense to my overall message or brand, but it also is a lot more emotionally exhausting and that's a good observation because this is another place that you really have to have boundaries. And I've talked about this in presentations before too. I think a lot of people are scared of the trolls or scared of the conflict. And there, there are tribes within the industry that spend more of their time actually attacking, policing, making fun of, and antagonizing, mm -hmm. harassing uh, people across the industry. Now, sometimes they're harassing and antagonizing people who are consistently sharing terrible information. Okay. And like on one hand, misinformation and bullshit you know i i'm i've got a problem with that but i've done a post mm -hmm. before that actually really caused a shitstorm where i still look at the underlying pattern of the behavior of the people involved and i go okay if they're exclusively going after verifiable charlatans that's one thing uh, lane norton is really good at that balance but he's also built a legacy of information across his career but then there are other people who anybody no matter how well-intentioned, who maybe steps sideways of what their interpretation of what's right, and all of a sudden they start attacking those people, and they start congratulating themselves and patting themselves on the back for within their little echo chamber for a job well done. There's a lot of people quietly watching going, God, you guys are the reason why I'm scared to death to put anything on the internet for fear of being yep. attacked or made fun of. And to me, I think that behavior is a massive net negative. And I... I like to point out, and I've said this before publicly, um, I like to put out Sam Spinelli, who massive following, he is overwhelmingly positive, shares great information, debunks myth, and it is very, very seldom. Like he, he, there's like a couple of very big accounts that share misinformation on a regular basis that Sam will sometimes spar with. But other than that, 90, 95% plus of his information is really kind, doesn't mention anybody else. And he's built a very big following. And, you know, I know him personally, he's a really wonderful human being and I endorse him openly. And I would rather send people his way than some of these accounts that are evidence-based, but get malicious. Yes. I think another thing with the quote posts with social media in general is again, having boundaries. So if somebody comments I'm perfectly willing to debate with somebody, listen to somebody's opinion if they are respectful. Mm -hmm. If they are, I will respond and I will be very respectful back. If somebody comments they're not respectful, they get blocked immediately. I didn't do this for a long time. I now have a zero strike policy. Mm -hmm. Somebody is disrespectful, blocked. Somebody attacks one of my followers, blocked. I don't care. Mm -hmm. And for my overall mental health, best thing and it takes away the fear from posting mm. if people are fearful just have that zero strike policy don't I, engage with them get rid of them and I, they're not well intentioned the majority of them yep you're right um this has come up before too if someone is challenging maybe uh, opinion but they, uh, I think we can assume charitable intent initially with that type. And we know the difference. We know the difference between a malicious troll and someone who maybe they're, maybe they're having a bad day and you pose a question, you turn around and be nice to them. If their response is antagonistic or if you get someone, I recently had, had someone who popped up on a post and wrote these long essays and they were argumentative and difficult. And so I replied, kind of countering what this guy was saying. But it was very evident that he was making stuff up. He was saying that he had a whole bunch of DMs. And this is a very innocuous post. He said he had a whole bunch of people in his DMs, you know, 
disagreeing with it. I'm like, no, this is bullshit. You know, you're making this up. And I looked, the guy's got 70,000 followers, but most of his recent posts, he wasn't getting more than 20 to 50 likes on his posts. I'm like, his, his following's fake. And that speaks yeah, to- Yeah, they're bots. Yeah, they're bots. And so this is integrity. So if his following's fake, he's lying about everything else. And so, and he's also sparring with someone else who was interacting on one of my posts too. And pretty quickly, what I did is I just restricted him. So I find block trolls and malicious crap. Yeah. But I find restrict works even better sometimes because that person, they don't know they've been restricted. So they're kind of just yelling into the wind. No one else can see what they're doing. And unfortunately, one of the dangers with blocking certain people is you could actually create an antagonist who will create other accounts and show up and continue to harass you. Uh, or they whine about how you block everybody on other sites. So I think blocking is actually the appropriate thing in a lot of cases, but I even find just restricting people. So you don't see their comments, they don't show up, you don't get notifications about them and no one else sees it. And it just can just put it out of sight, out of mind and they can just yell and they think that you're seeing it and, and you don't. I didn't even know you could do that. I'm very lucky. I think in all my years on social media, I have maybe blocked probably under 50 people. Mm-hmm. 99, if not more percent of my social media experience has been so positive. I don't deal with much. Everybody is positive, supportive. The number of kind messages I get every day just about my content. I do get more messages about my cats than my content, <laughs> which makes my day and it's completely legitimate. I think social media is largely what you make of it. So many, the people who complain about it are often the people putting out antagonistic posts or the people debating in a way that is not necessarily helpful. And then announcing that they're leaving social media for a week so everybody knows and then they're back. (laughs) They announce that they're unfollowing you because they did it. And my experience has actually been very close to yours. It's overwhelmingly good overwhelmingly positive messages. People love my cat, Ozzy. My cat, Ozzy, and your cat, Eric, big fluffy Eric, are, are similar looking, right? Uh, they're big, just yeah. cats. Um, you know, Ozzy's 16 pounds. I think you said Eric's probably like north of 18. Or- probably 18. I think he's at least 18 now, but his limbs, is, they're so thick and he's so fluffy that he looks like he weighs about 30 pounds. Well, it doesn't- And there's a quick little story about the size. A raccoon. So my mom, she lives about five minutes away from me in a townhouse and she has numerous decks. This raccoon had been climbing up on the deck off the bedroom that nobody has gone out on in over 20 years. A tiny little deck shredded the carpet, would come and go. All of a sudden, I believe it was four or five nights ago, the raccoon went up on the deck, gave birth to three babies. So Mm -hmm. right now, currently, on the deck, there is a raccoon with three little babies. Wildlife, um, I don't know the name of the company, Wildlife Rescue or something. They're going to come within the next week to relocate these raccoons, but they want them to stay for now just so the babies are big enough. Okay. But the reason I bring that up, Eric is probably bigger than the mama rac- pregnant mama raccoon. <laughs> and and now she's had the babies. You're... Yeah you're quite small. Like you are a, like a, a small human being, right? So Eric is just gigantic next to you. Whereas like, I probably weigh yeah. double what you do. And uh, Ozzy still looks like a big cat in my arms. I, Eric I get, is a tank. Oh, you big boy. <laughs> I get a lot of messages about my client, Larry as well. So he's a 71 year old who's really strong. So people love that stuff. Yeah. It's you, like, like you do, if you're putting out just really solid information, um, it's all really sound stuff. It, it's really hard for people to just decide, hey, I don't like this person. I'm going to go come and, and mess with them. Um, I've been getting a slight uptick in negativity, trollish behavior. But again, I deal with it the way we just talked about. But I also think it's because my stuff has been getting out onto explore and feeds of people who aren't following me versus the people yeah. who self-selected. Anytime your stuff hits big and is in front of more eyes that aren't the people who self-select to follow you, you do run the risk of having someone who doesn't like it or agree with it come in and start screaming at you. But again, I don't want that to make someone fearful of putting themselves out there and sharing good information. 
because it is fairly easy, like you said, just to, okay, this person's antagonistic block from gone. For the people, and it did inspire me to put out a quote post. I forget my exact words. People should feel safe in the gym. Don't mm -hmm. be one of those people who goes around and corrects people's form while they're trying to train. 90, however many percent of the people agreed, but then you have people, oh, well, if I see something, why shouldn't I say something? It's like, you don't know what that person has been dealing with. You don't know what it took for them to go to the gym. You don't know potentially mental health struggles. You don't know anything. Who are you to comment? Maybe you're not satisfied. And yes, we all see things in the gym that we would love to correct. Mm -hmm. It's not unless somebody is going to really, really get hurt. I would never say anything. Right. And a client of mine, she recently had somebody make a comment about her form during an, like a new exercise she tried mm. and that threw her off. And I said, don't worry, like, don't let these people get in your head. And you don't understand how far along someone's progression uh, they are working on this. Yeah. Like we have this idea that if form is not perfect, that it's automatically injurious. And the research on this thing does not actually bear this out. I mean, I think no. the rounded back deadlift is a very nuanced thing. And I'm certainly not going to encourage, you know, brand new clients here. They, bracing doesn't matter. Just grab it and rip it and whatever. You look like a cat taking a crap. But we also know that elite powerlifters often lift with a brace controlled, but, you know, flex spine. And it yeah. just simply isn't the research to support the fact that this is inherently injurious, right? I mean, we know that high level power lifters, they, they have higher rates of injury due to the forces that they're dealing with, but do they sustain back injuries due to this stuff? I, I see power lifters in the gym. I work at all the time doing this stuff. Nothing bad seems to happen to them. So it's dangerous to make these assumptions because, well, they're not really supported by the evidence. Another one is, is knee valgus on a squat, right? If you have bilateral knee, that knee cave on a squat, there's plenty of research that just says, hey, this is not a contributing factor, factor to increased injury risk. Like single leg running and cutting mechanics for athletes and knee valgus. Oh yeah, there's definitely some stuff there. But you know, does that mean I just ignore knee valgus when I'm coaching a client with squatting? Hell no. But it also means that the person I see in the gym whose knees are caving in a little bit, I look over and I go, okay, cool. That person's fine. Their knee, they're not going to blow out their knees. And I'm not going to insert myself into the situation because I don't know this person's story, circumstance, journey, where they are on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't want to make people fearful. Nope. And so many of the people who go around and do that, or the people on social media who put out the black and white statements that everything, but this is bad final yep. product. And it's why I don't like the, the, I, I think there are people who can do it. Okay. But I'm not a big fan of the, the dual slide where one's got a green check mark and one's got a red X. Hey, this is wrong. This is right. And a lot of the stuff that I see, first of all, what they're saying is wrong is fine, right? It's usually just manufacturing nonsense. Or two, it, it does, and you hit it. It's this fear of movement, right? Like kinesiophobia. And ultimately, a lot of this stuff probably discourages people more from going in the gym because they're scared. How many clients have come to you because like, hey, I'm, I'm afraid to hurt myself. I don't know form. Humans are actually really resilient. I think teaching them yeah. good, effective form so that way they maximize the results. Yeah, that's super important. But I'm very careful about the language I use as to not inadvertently make someone fearful of going in, getting moving and getting started. Yeah. One of my clients, when she first started working with me and she filled out the online form that I have all my clients fill out, she wrote an essay of all these things that were supposedly wrong with her that another coach had told her. So she thought she was completely broken, fragile, couldn't do anything. I read this list of things. The one thing that we had to work on a little bit, limited ankle mobility on one side due to a past brain. Everything else completely irrelevant, never focused on it, never mentioned it. Guess what? She got stronger. She learned some cool stuff, moved better. None of it was even true. And I said to her about six months after we started working together, do you remember that big list of things that you sent me when we first started training? Have we had to deal with any of that? <laughs> and she thought, and she's like, no, I'm like, yeah. So see, don't people, oh, it's just so hard because if somebody 
in a position of trust tells you something, you're likely to believe them. So she thought she was just so damaged and none of it was true. That's a huge pet peeve of mine. And it, it especially matters with the, the healthcare practitioners that we align ourselves with or that our clients interact with. Uh, I'm very picky about physical therapists that I work with. I have two guys locally in Edmonton. I'm actually going to shout them both out. Um, Jason Dick at Movement First Physio and uh, Darren Bishop at the Bridge South. And I've been sending my clients to either one of them for years now. And I know these guys know strength training. They don't use fear-based language and they do wonderful work. Um, if I'm going to have any other practitioners, usually the tricky part is when people end up in front of like a general, a general practitioner doctor. And of course they go in and tell them, Hey, something's hurting. That person says, stop lifting. Well, that's creating fear around movement. That's unhelpful. And I'm very assertive in saying, Hey, do not go see your general practitioner about these type of things. You got, you got chest pain or like, you know, you're sick or all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. But if you're going to be dealing with something that's musculoskeletal pain type stuff, a, you're going to see a qualified physical therapist. Or in certain circumstances, you're going to be seeing an orthopedic surgeon, right? People who are actually yes. going to deal with this stuff. Oh, I could talk about this forever. <laughs> you know about my past car accident when I was 28 and how I had the five years of bouncing from doctor to doctor, mm -hmm. telling me that one supposed thing was wrong with me after the other. None of it was true. Five years later, I finally found somebody who actually figured out what had been causing all of my symptoms. I made more progress in two sessions with this physio than in five plus years. I have one person here I am comfortable sending clients to. Otherwise, I, people will ask me and I say, I'm like, I don't have anybody I am comfortable sending to you because I have dealt with some of these people in the language, even the biases people have. Another little story about three, three and a half years ago. I don't know how I did it. I suspect when I was front squatting, my weight shifted a tiny bit to my one side. Mm -hmm. Two days later, my glute was a bit tight. Piriformis, I think all of a sudden, severe, severe, severe glute spasms. Mm -hmm. That was crushing my sciatic nerve. It was horrible. I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand. Pain was 9.5 out of 10 and I am tough. Mm -hmm. So I went to a physio, a guy I was seeing here just for the occasional IMS. Mm -hmm. And he right away, oh yeah, it's your back. And I knew it wasn't. I said, this is what's happening. Can you please look into this? For three and a half, three and a half weeks, he's like, no, it's your back. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't listen. I talked to Stu McGill on the phone. And he even gave me some tests to rule out my back. I passed all of them. Three and a half weeks later, this physio, he's like, oh, I think you're right. Your piriformis is spasming and it's basically crushing your sciatic nerve. Oof. So he gave me a basic movement, to, or I don't even know what he necessarily gave me, but the piriformis relaxed. But because of that, it had been, my sciatic nerve had been crushed for three and a half weeks. I was unable to stand for a month. I was on the couch for a month, mm. couldn't really go for more than a thousand steps a day for eight weeks. And for a year, I had numbness on the side of my lower leg. Mm. I had shaved my legs and it felt like rubber on the left lateral calf. It, and this was a guy who basically was just so set in his ways, would not listen to me, used the most harmful language. He said, oh yeah, if it's a disc in your back, you could basically be screwed for good which we know is nonsense. Jesus. So let's just say I will not be referring anybody to him. And I know he fought. Oh, I know he follows me. So if he's listening, he'll probably know I'm talking about him, but that's, you know what? That's, learn the lesson. That's, that's what I say. Learn your lesson, buddy. Yep. There are consequences for that sort of stuff too. Right. So um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get it. It's why I mean, I, I actually do know some other good physios in the city too. And I want to be very careful that, um, it doesn't sound like, Hey, I wouldn't recommend some of the other ones that I know It just what happens. I have this entrenched relationship with two people. I'm like, yeah, these, these guys yeah. are amazing. There's plenty of other really good ones out there, but I also know some people, you know, some in the industry, I'm just like, nah, you know, I just, I don't know enough about your background yet to have had that relationship. So, or at some people, I just don't think they don't have a background and understanding of like strength training. 
And mm -hmm. that to me is a bit of a red flag uh, when it comes to physical therapy. I mean, as long as we're not dealing with people who are like specialists in pelvic floor health or, you know, certain clinical applications, but uh, yeah. So uh, I'm almost out of time. So let's remind people where they can find you, where they can find your programs, uh, your social media. Easiest thing, my website, NadineCallawayFitness.com hmm. and me on Instagram at NadineCallaway. That's simple. Go follow Megan, guys, please. Um, you can learn a lot about, hey, social media creation, movement. And I hope this nuanced discussion, because this is actually one of, the, one of my favorite conversations in a while, gives you guys a lot of philosophy and principles and tactics on how you can approach your career, especially the stuff about setting boundaries. And especially if you're a little earlier in this stuff and not bump it up against these things like Megan and I are with our schedules and like having to say no to a lot of things you're going to be better off having like figured this stuff out now before you get to the point where you're approaching burnout versus uh, yeah, they just, just give this stuff some thought. Megan, I really appreciate you. Thanks for coming on. Um, any parting thoughts? Uh, even in line with what you were just saying. And I guess people like us who've been around for longer, we can be more selective unless it's fuck. Yes say no good unless you are certain and you really want to do it mm -hmm. i will now say no because it gives it kind of saves the space for something to come along that might be a better fit for me personally professionally and if it's not a good fit for me it's not going to benefit the people i'm working with anyway and i want to work with people i know i can help mm -hmm. so that's also why i say no a lot more now than i used to that's wise a uh, really good book, if, if anybody hasn't read it, uh, Greg McKeon's Essentialism goes very, very heavy into what you just described, and it's a good filter to explore this through. Megan, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for having me, and bye to Ozzy. Bye-bye, Ozzy. I don't know, he's floating around here somewhere.